This episode contains discussions about children born to unmarried parents. In place of the term illegitimate child, we'll say natural child. In late 18th century England, a good hundred years before the Victorian era, the British elite liked to indulge in bad behavior. Sir Francis Dashwood, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, hosted secret debaucherous parties for politicians like himself who loved to gamble, drink, and womanize. Their fraternity was called the Hellfire Club. They met in elaborate, pagan-themed caves near Dashwood's home, nestled halfway between London and Oxford. Each male visitor wore a monk's robe. The women dressed as nuns and hid their faces under masks. Everyone had a code name to protect their reputation. However, one attendee was too popular not to be recognized. His code name was Brother Benjamin of Cookham otherwise known as Ben Franklin. As a grand master Freemason and founder of his own fraternity called the Junto, he enjoyed socializing with other high-minded men. Plus, societies like the Hellfire Club were the perfect place to exchange ideas. And in 1770s England, intellectual discourse boiled down to one topic in particular— the revolution that was brewing in the American colonies, and what to do about it. British Secret Service agents are also rumored to have attended Hellfire Club parties. Before spy tools like wires and zoom lenses were invented, secret agents gathered information by assuming different identities and attending international A-list soirees. Many double agents would have befriended Franklin. Perhaps they caught on to how he often drank until he got tipsy, making him more prone to spilling sensitive secrets. Or maybe his many extramarital affairs made it easier for undercover agents to blackmail him. Or possibly nobody had to coerce Franklin into talking. He might not have been at the Hellfire Club as an unwitting guest at all, but as a spy for England. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on Benjamin Franklin, one of America's best-known founding fathers. In retrospect, many aspects of Franklin's life, from romance to politics to his career, kept his loyalties divided. Last time, we discussed Franklin's life as an author, statesman, and inventor. We also talked about his objections to the American Revolution, his scandalous time as a Freemason, and his double life and second wife in London. This episode, we'll explore three conspiracy theories surrounding the so-called Sage from Philadelphia. Conspiracy theory number one. 
Franklin was a spy who gave intel about American activities to the British. Conspiracy theory number two. Franklin covered up his affairs and numerous natural children. And conspiracy theory number three. Franklin was a serial killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. In the late 18th century, the Hellfire Club was an exclusive secret society. Disguised as frisky friars and naughty nuns, the members practiced pagan rituals and decorated their headquarters with phallic imagery. Despite the role-playing and sacrosanct aesthetics, the revelers weren't satanic. They thought it was funny and clever to mock organized religion— Coincidentally, this was one of Benjamin Franklin's favorite pastimes as well. The fraternity operated on a swanky, slightly dangerous aesthetic. The guest list was a who's who of British officials. VIPs included nobles like a former prime minister, the Earl of Butte, the Earl of Sandwich, and a radical MP named John Wilkes. Another reported attendee was a diplomat and transgender woman called the Chevalier d'Eon, who we'll refer to as they-them. They were a spy for the French King Louis XV before they came to London. Louis had deployed the Chevalier to Russia to cozy up to the Empress and steal her secrets. The Chevalier infiltrated the court and accomplished their mission. Afterward, Versailles welcomed them home as a hero, and Louis gave them a new mission. He ordered the Chevalier to scout Britain's coastline for weak points, just in case France wanted to invade England in the near future. But allegedly, the first time the Chevalier entered the Hellfire Caves, agents from the British Secret Service enticed them to stay and have a good time, and forget about their original mission for France. The Chevalier became a double agent, and according to author Donald McCormick, better known as Richard Deacon, they weren't the only one. At Hellfire parties, the Chevalier cozied up to another alleged spy for the crown, Benjamin Franklin. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Franklin was a member of a complex spy ring that fed American intel to the British. We can't discuss Franklin's alleged espionage without covering his activities at the Hellfire Club. That's because most of the evidence we have for this theory comes from a woman named Rachel Fanny Antonina Lee. She was the daughter of Francis Dashwood, the man who founded the Hellfire Club and a close friend of Franklin. After her father's death in 1781, Lee stayed with a man named Thomas De Quincey, Lee and De Quincey liked to exchange stories about Dashwood. De Quincey later became a journalist and a historian and one of the primary chroniclers about Dashwood's life and the Hellfire Club. 
De Quincey claimed that Dashwood often toasted, quote, Brother Benjamin, our friend and secret ally, all the time he was in the enemy camp, end quote. Which sounds a lot like it was an open secret that Franklin was working for the British and that America was the enemy camp, at least within the Hellfire Club. And that's not the only claim De Quincey made about him. He also argued that Franklin was part of a complex network involving couriers stationed throughout Europe. Allegedly, Franklin didn't just relay his intelligence directly to the Crown. He communicated with operatives in Ireland, France, and England. Of course, it's hard to take any of De Quincey's allegations at face value. He got this information on Franklin's activities third-hand from Lee, who in turn heard these accounts from her father, Sir Dashwood. And no one has ever explained how Dashwood would have access to this intel in the first place. But another author, Richard Deacon, said he uncovered hard evidence of Franklin's spy career, documents he found in the archives of the British Secret Service. The account was evidently written by an anonymous British intelligence operative. It said that Franklin was, in Deacon's words, quote, a member in good standing known to the British Secret Service as Agent 72, end quote. As for Agent 72's motive, allegedly this spy worked with a group of land speculators called the Grand Ohio Company. They were collaborating to seize land in the colonies because, at that time, there weren't set borders between the territories. In 1769, Pennsylvania didn't have a definitive western border, even though indigenous people lived on over two million acres of what is now West Virginia, the Grand Ohio Company wanted the land for themselves. They just needed to convince the Crown to give it to them. That same year, Franklin joined the company in addition to becoming a lobbyist in London. He had a good relationship with the king and thought he could close the deal. Last time, we talked about Franklin's efforts to become a lord in England. This attempt was pretty similar in terms of self-interest. Franklin didn't just want to help the Grand Ohio Company secure their stake. He also wanted to be the proprietor of the Virginia property that he planned to name Vandalia. Franklin even drafted articles of government for Vandalia. He proposed different ways the shareholders would divide the land and stipulated that they would pay rent to the King of England for the next 20 years. Nothing ever came of the Vandalia proposal, but the possibility of it could have been a juicy carrot to incentivize Franklin. He just had to provide his British peers with intel about the colonists' plans, which could have been pretty easy if he relayed the information through his secretary, Edward Bancroft, a known British spy. We discussed Bancroft in part one, a secret agent who routinely stole intelligence from Franklin's French embassy. British Secret Service archivists didn't discover his encrypted messages until almost seven decades after his death, so Bancroft never got caught. But Bancroft wasn't Franklin's only potential ally. In addition to his friend the Chevalier, Franklin also knew a sailor named Joseph Hinson. According to correspondence between Hinson and another British spy named John Vardil, 
Hinson worked as a messenger for Franklin. He coordinated troop movements and supply deliveries with Paris. Evidently, Vardil bribed Hinson to stop off in London first and deliver the info to their Secret Service office. Many of these accounts come from research done for a book called A History of the British Secret Service by Richard Deacon. Deacon claimed he had journal entries, letters, and British Secret Service reports to back up all those claims, but he never showed anyone the evidence he allegedly had. And Deacon knows how to spin a good yarn. Although he claimed that A History of the British Secret Service was a work of nonfiction, Deacon also had a reputation as a bit of a revisionist historian. Maybe he fudged some facts to make his account of Franklin's supposed espionage career more exciting. Especially because we know Franklin had a history of ferrying sensitive information to the colonies. It all ties back to his role in the so-called Hutchinson Affair. In the 1760s, the relationship between America and England was tense, and the colonists were starting to talk about independence. Thomas Hutchinson, the lieutenant governor in Massachusetts, sensed conflict impending and wrote letters to the motherland asking for a stronger military presence. The British dispatched a regiment, which subsequently shot and killed five civilians in the infamous Boston Massacre on March 5, 1770. Two years later, an anonymous sender sent a package to Franklin's home. When he opened it, he found Hutchinson's letters begging the Crown for military support. Keep in mind, the colonists were well aware that British troops were responsible for the Boston Massacre. But Hutchinson's letters were inflammatory because he spoke frankly about how the Crown should crack down harshly to stop the rebellion. He even lied to make the colonists look dangerous. Franklin sent the documents to his American allies, knowing they would further flame the fires of revolution. In Massachusetts, Samuel Adams proceeded to read the papers out loud to the state legislature and then gave them to John Adams, who published them widely. The colonists were outraged. Hutchinson had to flee to England and his political career never recovered. Meanwhile, in London, Parliament tried to identify who had divulged their government's classified material. It got so tense, the two British officials were about to kill each other in a duel over it, prompting Franklin to finally take responsibility for the leak. At least that action demonstrated Franklin was honest about his political activities and supported the colonies during the Hutchinson affair. But as we discussed last time, he also opposed the revolution right up until the war broke out. He could have worked as a British spy before he switched sides. That's true, but there's no hard evidence that Franklin had any kind of espionage career. It's possible that he was a British sympathizer, but that doesn't automatically mean he was also a spy. No, but he had plenty of motive. Franklin was incredibly ambitious, lobbying for British land and titles, all of which meant he had a lot of incentive to stay on the Crown's good side. I can't argue with that. But ultimately, I've got to trust the evidence here, or rather, the lack of evidence. 
On a scale of one to 10, with one meaning it's unbelievable, and 10 meaning it's almost definitely true, I give conspiracy theory number one a three. Yeah, I agree. It's clear that Franklin had the motives and the connections to work as a spy, but there's no indication that he actually took the leap into the world of espionage. I'm inclined to give conspiracy theory number one a four out of 10. One reason this theory is so appealing is that Franklin was hard to read. It's hard even now to say how he really felt about anything. Not only did he flip-flop on his political stances, he also regularly contradicted himself, like cheating on his wife while writing essays on the importance of chastity and monogamy. And that double standard may have been by design. Even if he wasn't a spy, Franklin had plenty of dark secrets he wanted to keep quiet, including allegedly fathering up to 15 natural children the world never learned about, thanks to an elaborate cover-up. Coming up, Benjamin Franklin's quest to hide his affairs. The CIA. They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public, and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Benjamin Franklin probably wasn't a spy, perhaps because he had plenty of other illicit activities to keep him busy. Franklin and his common-law wife, Deborah Reed, lived as a married couple and had two biological children together in America. Their son, Francis, died tragically when he was four. But their daughter, Sally, survived to adulthood, married, and used the name Sally Franklin Bache. But those weren't Franklin's only children. We discussed his natural son, William Franklin, last time. Ben and Deborah never publicly identified William's biological mother, and they raised him as their own. But he may not have been Franklin's only natural child. In fact, the evidence suggests that Franklin may have had more than a dozen. It's hard to say how many exactly because of the extreme steps he supposedly took to hide their existence. Which leads us to conspiracy theory number two. Franklin wrote about chastity and morality as part of a cover-up, so no one would ever know about his many sexual partners and children. One of his natural children may have been a daughter, who we only know about thanks to a series of letters between Franklin and his business associate, John Foxcroft. 
Franklin and Foxcroft worked together as joint postmaster generals. Long after Franklin retired and moved away to London, they kept in touch. This may be because Foxcroft married Franklin's natural daughter, a woman known only as Mrs. Foxcroft. In a message dated February 2nd, 1772, Foxcroft announced the birth of his new daughter. He wrote, quote, I have the happiness to acquaint you that your daughter was safely brought to bed and presented me with a sweet little girl. It's highly unlikely that Foxcroft was referencing Franklin's daughter, Sally Franklin Bache. For one thing, Sally wasn't married to Foxcroft, so he wouldn't claim her daughter as his own. Plus, Foxcroft mentioned Sally later in the same note, calling her Mrs. Bache, not Mrs. Foxcroft. Subsequent letters also made it clear that Franklin had a daughter besides Sally. His notes to Foxcroft often include the phrase, my love to my daughter. It's impossible to confirm that she was Franklin's biological child, since Mrs. Foxcroft doesn't appear in any historical records, especially because we know he adopted a fatherly role with several of his girlfriends. Maybe Mrs. Foxcroft was merely a female acquaintance that he saw as a daughter. That's possible, but it's equally likely that Mrs. Foxcroft was Franklin's biological child. We know that Franklin took an active role in the lives of his natural children. We'll just look at the relationship with William. Franklin raised William and frequently traveled with him throughout his adulthood. Unfortunately, William couldn't escape vicious rumors about his conception, and equally salacious gossip dogged Franklin throughout his life. Even after he died, the memoirs of the late Dr. Franklin claimed, quote, he had mistresses plenty, and there are several living testimonies of his licentious amours, end quote. Several living testimonies, implying that Franklin was survived by multiple natural children. Even a suffragist named Elizabeth Cady Stanton gave a speech that accused Franklin of fathering more than one natural child. In 1871, she alluded to William's parentage and added, quote, how many more of the same sort he had, probably Franklin himself never knew. Stanton's speech focused on the double standard that allowed male politicians and celebrities to mistreat their wives and families without pushback. Supposedly, she pilloried Franklin because she was frustrated that he and other men like him weren't held accountable. And maybe Franklin didn't suffer any negative consequences for his affairs because nobody knew for sure if they'd even happened. Unlike modern times, it was a lot easier back then not to leave a paper trail of extramarital trysts. Not to mention, having children out of wedlock was a crime in the 18th century. Laws in the colonies said that if two people had sex outside of marriage, they were guilty of the crime of fornication. And the conception of a natural child was an even more serious offense. For example, in Virginia, the church wardens of a local parish would force an unwed mother to pay fines. If the mother couldn't pay, she received 25 lashes on her bare back at the public whipping post. Legal risks aside, Franklin had his own more selfish reasons to hide his transgressions. Reportedly, Franklin cared about his image more than anything. 
When he was editor of the Gazette, he often woke up very early, filled his wheelbarrow with printing supplies, and then pushed it to his shop. He could have hired someone else to handle this labor, but he wanted to appear humble. He also wanted to seem chaste. Like we mentioned last time, Franklin published self-help-style essays that warned others against sexual indulgence. Which seems highly hypocritical, especially if you assume Franklin wrote rules he never intended to follow, all to deflect attention from his own personal flaws. Of course, it's possible Franklin's essays served the opposite purpose. Maybe Franklin wrote about his sex life because he wasn't trying to cover up his infractions. He was explaining them. Franklin was smart enough to realize that exposing his vulnerabilities made him more relatable to his readers. Franklin also might have realized that trying to cover up extramarital affairs often made things worse. He may have tried to get the sordid details out in the open so he could control the narrative. Take one essay he wrote about choosing a mistress. Franklin urged men to pursue older women because they were more intellectual and less likely to get pregnant. This could have been Franklin's way of making fun of himself for dating the wrong type of girlfriend in the past. But Franklin wasn't trying to be funny or vulnerable when he instructed people to be chaste, prudent, and respectable. That feels like a cover-up. Also, he was too smart not to try and protect his reputation. He knew the power of his public image and that people were quick to judge others for their immoral conduct. It's undeniable that Franklin had many affairs, but that doesn't mean any of those relationships resulted in a pregnancy. Even Stanton's speech about gender-based double standards only said Franklin probably never knew how many natural children he had. She didn't technically accuse him of actually fathering any. And Stanton barely focused on Franklin's progeny. She mostly spoke about how poorly he treated his wife, Deborah. And we know of the one case where Franklin did acknowledge a natural child, William. Then he did the same thing with his grandson. When Franklin and William traveled through Europe together, William allegedly hired sex workers on several occasions. At one point, a woman whose name wasn't recorded became pregnant. William apparently wasn't ready to be a father and put the baby in foster care, but then Franklin rescued him. Franklin became close with his grandson named Temple and helped raise him. That hardly seems like the behavior you'd expect from someone who'd go to any length to hide his natural children. The facts of this conspiracy theory are undeniable. Franklin had numerous extramarital affairs and at least one natural child we know of, and he certainly wrote about the importance of sexual chastity, only to publish rules he didn't follow. The question then is whether we believe he was being ironic or intentionally covering up his affairs. Even if Franklin was publishing these essays to be tongue-in-cheek, they probably also helped him salvage his reputation. If any of his readers weren't aware of his personal life, they might assume he was a loyal husband based on his writings. True, but we also know he didn't go out of his way to hide his mistresses. Last episode, we talked about the time he spent living in London and his affair with his landlord, Margaret Stevenson. Margaret and Franklin not only attended parties together, 
but openly lived as a couple. That seems like the complete opposite of someone who's trying to cover up his extramarital affairs. Ultimately, if Franklin had more than one natural child, we'll never know. None of the mothers or Franklin's potential sons or daughters ever came forward publicly. So in light of the lack of any hard evidence and the fact that he never tried to hide his second family in London, I give conspiracy theory number two a three out of 10. There were no paternity tests during the colonial era. If there were, I might believe Franklin had reason to stage a cover-up of his salacious private life. But without tangible evidence, I'll give this theory a six out of 10. While we don't know the full details of Franklin's sex life, he certainly had other scandals that left behind concrete evidence, like the bones from more than a dozen bodies buried in the backyard of his London home. Last time, we talked about how construction workers uncovered a mass grave in 1998 that they traced back to Franklin's time. The long-buried corpses left historians baffled, and they're not the only evidence suggesting Franklin may have been a serial killer. Coming up, the skeletons in Franklin's basement. Now back to the story. In 1757, Franklin left his common-law wife and children behind to relocate to England. For the next 16 years, he boarded at 36 Craven Street in London. The elegant four-story townhouse changed hands several times in the next two and a half centuries until the Friends of Benjamin Franklin House bought the property. They made it into an official landmark and museum because by then, it was Franklin's only home that was still standing. But by the 1990s, the house was in dire condition and the management team had to make extensive renovations. Just one month into the construction work in 1998, a worker named Jim Field made a macabre discovery. In the eerie windowless basement, Field found a small pit, about one meter wide and one meter deep. Even worse, he saw a porcelain-like object sticking out of the hole. Field thought he was hallucinating. It looked like a human thigh bone. Field reported what he'd found, and soon forensic investigators arrived on the scene. They tested the bone in their lab. It was real. And later excavations revealed more human bones, all in all, there were 1,200, including some from small children. The investigators dated the bones back to when the statesmen had lived in the house. Which led them to a morbid conclusion and the basis of conspiracy theory number three. Benjamin Franklin was a serial killer. It's hard to imagine that one of the United States' most beloved founding fathers could have been a murderer but the theory seems more credible when you look at Franklin's psychology. The U.S. government characterizes a serial murderer as someone who kills three or more people with a break between the attacks. When the killer is a man, he's often motivated by his sexual urges. And we've already established that Franklin had a powerful sexual appetite. In addition, serial killers can be very charming and charismatic, in part because they often have delusions of grandiosity. This also fits with Franklin. 
His friends complained that he had a snobby streak and refused to ever admit that he was wrong. According to the FBI, this feeling of superiority can help serial killers feel omnipotent. Some even brag about their exploits to further feed their egos. For example, the moniker Jack the Ripper came from the killer himself. We may not know the Ripper's real identity, but we do know he liked to show off and wrote about his exploits in anonymous letters to the police. Likewise, Franklin often railed against strict religious rules in his writing. Maybe in an attempt to subtly show off that he was flouting religious taboos and laws against murder. And of course, the strongest piece of evidence suggesting Franklin may have been a killer are the bones in his backyard. But there's an alternate explanation for how they got there. The home at 36 Craven Street was a lodging house, meaning it had many rooms for rent besides Franklin's. One of the other residents was a doctor named William Hewson. Like Franklin, Hewson had high aspirations. He wanted to be the best at dissecting dead bodies. He believed that one day, esteemed medical journals would publish his research. After building a medical theater in the back of Stevenson's house, Hewson opened his own private anatomy school. He promised to teach his students by leading them in autopsies, but Hewson didn't have an easy way of securing cadavers. Due to strong taboos against handling dead bodies, doctors in the 1700s could essentially only get corpses from one source, criminals who'd been hanged. If a physician wanted to learn about the other ways people died, they had to get creative. Hewson probably had no choice but to pay body snatchers to steal corpses from graveyards. Human remains were plentiful in late 18th century London because of the dueling smallpox and typhus outbreaks. Even so, grave robbing was highly illegal. Hewson managed to evade detection even as his school became very popular, which meant he surely needed a hiding place to dispose of the remains after his lessons a place no one would ever think to look. Most likely, he buried them in the Craven Street basement. In other words, it's very improbable that Franklin was a serial killer. It's a lot easier to believe the bones came from Hewson's illegal anatomical experiments. In fact, when the forensic investigators tested the bones in 1998, they discovered knife marks on the skeletons, but they weren't rough cuts like you'd expect if the corpses were attacked or stabbed. The marks were precise and surgical. One skull was sliced cleanly in half, as if a surgeon had removed it to access the brain. That's pretty compelling. But it leaves one more question, whether Franklin knew about Hewson's illicit dissection business. Franklin and Hewson were close friends and neighbors. They bonded over their love of science. Realistically, Franklin probably had to know about the illegal autopsies, but he must have looked the other way because he believed Hewson was serving the greater good. Franklin wasn't the type to shun scientific experiments. He may have even attended the lectures in Hewson's school. As for the traits that Franklin shared with other murderers, he may have been an egomaniac and a womanizer, but lots of people are arrogant and promiscuous without being serial killers. Plus, according to the FBI, 
There's no such thing as a standard serial killer psychological profile. Some are egotistical, charming, and motivated by sex, but there are a lot of murderers who aren't. Which means there isn't much value in analyzing Franklin's personality to see if it matches known killers. You could take almost any person and identify traits they have in common with serial murderers. Between Houston's medical school and the forensic evidence, there's not much here to back up this theory. That's why I give it a one out of 10. I agree with your score and your reasoning. Given the overwhelming evidence that Houston stole the bodies for his school, I also have to give conspiracy theory number three a one out of 10. All three of the theories we discussed today shared the same drawback, a lack of surviving evidence but they all had a grain of truth to them. Franklin may not have been a British spy, but he likely rubbed elbows with double agents at the Hellfire Club. He may not have covered up his affairs, but he did betray his wife and children. That may be why these theories are so appealing. Franklin had plenty of dark secrets, so it doesn't feel like that much of a leap to think he was also a traitor or a criminal mastermind. However, the same thing could be said about nearly any famous figure. It's extremely difficult to name any celebrity who didn't have a sex scandal or controversial friends because everyone has flaws. Take Franklin's fellow founding fathers like Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Both had their fair share of scandals, with Burr even allegedly trying to lead a rebellion against the United States government. Yet we often don't hear their more salacious stories because a lot of Americans like to hold these men up as role models. That may point to the most scandalous aspect of Franklin, not the conspiracy theories surrounding him, but that he serves as proof to the human tendency to rewrite history to our own tastes. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Monday with a new episode you can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lisa S. Boyd, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast. Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we're uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.